If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, you are joining us in a succession of sermons that is preparing our church, Capital City Church, for a multi-year preaching series, Harmonizing the Life and Ministry of Jesus Christ in the Four Gospels. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be starting that series this Christmas. It's very fun. doesn't happen too often, as you know, that uh, Christmas Day lands on the Lord's Day on Sunday morning. And so we'll be starting this series uh, through the Gospels on that morning. Our current 25-week series leading up to the life of Christ is titled Anticipating the King. This series is designed to show how our Old Testament foresees and anticipates the coming of a king who will deal in righteousness and justice. We have five sub-series. Stick with me here with all the you know, use of the word series. Are you with me? Are you awake? There's less of you this morning. I don't know where everybody went. Dr. Bookman scared everybody off. We have five sub-series within the main series. Uh, We are now in week 12 and in the third sub-series titled, Where is the King? In our first sub-series titled Beginnings, we learned that God promised Adam and Eve that one of their children would reverse the curse of sin and death. Uh, that God had allowed to come upon all of humanity because of Adam's sin, because of of his sin. We learned that the child would come through Abraham's great-grandson Judah, and that that child would not just be a child, but he would be a king, as uh, Isaac prophesied over uh, his family in Genesis 49 and verse 8, they're saying that the scepter would not Depart from Judah. That is the king. Would always come out of Judah's line. We have uh, continued to learn that in our second series titled A Holy Nation, that Yahweh would take the tribe of Israel and turn them into a set apart nation, one from whom a God king and a prophet like Moses would come. In our current sub series titled Where is the King? We have learned that. After a period of just over 400 years encompassing the leaders of Moses, Joshua, and Judges, that it is likely that it is Samuel, the judge, who is writing down what we now call the book of Judges. In authoring Judges, Samuel makes it clear that even though Israel was looking for the king who was to come, that king was not present. And if you have studied your way through Judges at any uh, time in the, in the recent past, you will have noticed this theme that showed up. Troy mentioned it a couple weeks ago. In Judges 19.1, Samuel wrote this, Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. In Judges 18.1 says, In those days there was no king of Israel. And uh, in chapter 17.6, Samuel wrote, In those days there was no king in Israel. Are we getting the point? <laughs> Samuel is writing. He is looking for a king that has been uh, proclaimed. And back in Genesis 49 and in Numbers 24, they're expecting that there is this king who is to come. And beloved, Samuel, when he wrote in 17.6, clarifies the days of those judges and says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Beloved, that is the nature of humanity, is it not? When there is not a leader who will follow and apply God's very will written to us in his very word, every man will do what is right in his own eyes. That's what America celebrates. Our flesh wants it. We just want to be God. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want to submit to God's authority. We don't want to submit to the godly men and women God puts in our lives. We don't want to submit to anything. Ironically, it's the best-selling book of all time and sits on most of y'all's nightstands and bookshelves, and yet, for some reason, we often do not turn to it. And in our own mind, in our own eyes, often... We are guilty of this very thing. We just do what is right in our own eyes. It's what Israel was doing. But Israel was looking for a king, a king that would come and rule the nations with righteousness and justice. Last week, Dr. Bookman eloquently told us that 
when the now nation of Israel begged the prophet Samuel for a king, that it seemed like, you remember this, that being head and shoulders taller than everyone else was what was the qualification for being king. And you'll remember if you think back to when Jesse lined up all of his sons in front of Samuel, Samuel even, right? He looks out, he sees the first son, he looks very good looking, he's taller than the rest of him. Ah, that must be the king. <laughs> I don't know, what is that? I, I hope that's not true because I guess Troy, if he was here, he'd be, he'd be, in, the, he'd be in the running. Paul, dark, handsome Troy, must be the king. Dr. Bookman used that spiritual word, doofus, to describe Israel's first appointed king, King Saul. In a contrastive way, he compared that handsome, tall, doofus Saul, the people's choice, to the man of God's choosing, David, a man who was after God's own heart. In effect, Saul was chosen by the people, and David was chosen by God. Remember that like Gideon and Samson, who had received the Holy Spirit and delivered Israel from their enemies, both Saul and David also received the Holy Spirit to deliver Israel from its enemies. I think it's instructive for us as time goes on in the text and in the New Testament, right? We get these big ideas and big chunks of time are going down in Genesis and even Exodus, Right? And then things begin to slow down with Moses and we get more and more details and, and that's kind of how the rest of the scripture goes and we can kind of lose. Uh, we hit the judges and we see this cycle of, uh, of sin right, that is going on and the people get into sin. right, And then immediately they, the second S is they are, become into servitude. In other words, they start begin to serve other nations. God judges them. Right Then they supplicate, they cry out for, for wisdom, and that God would, would, would deliver them, right? And then God sends them a savior, a judge. And, and when he did that, the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon Sam, Samson, and he would empower Samson to do the things that he did. And the Spirit of the Lord would come upon Gideon, who was scared to death of the Philistines, and he would empower him to accomplish his will. And it's easy for us in the length of time that is going on in Judges and, and, and in Samuel to forget that what happens when Jesus Christ comes and, and in A.D. 30, he goes down to the Jordan River where John the baptizer is baptizing and this massive moment happens. Uh, once again in Scripture, he is baptized, he comes up, and what happens? The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jesus of Nazareth. And just like the strength that Samson had and the, and the wisdom and the, and the courage that Gideon had and the strength that, that uh, David would have, the Spirit of God enables, empowers, and strengthens Jesus of Nazareth to do the ministry that he is going to do. And we, sometimes we lose that, don't we? In all the pages of the Old Testament. So Saul and David, they received the Holy Spirit to deliver Israel from its enemies. After all, if Israel's enemies destroyed them, God would not have kept his forever covenant to his servant Abraham concerning the land, that is that nation, that geographic spot on the earth that we call Israel, the seed, a king who was to come in the blessings of peace amidst the nations. That's the forever promise to Abraham. If David cannot deliver the nation, if Saul cannot deliver the nation, then the nation would be succumb by other nations, and we wouldn't have an Israel, and we certainly wouldn't have a king. And they wouldn't have rest. Beloved, you'll remember from last week that Dr. Bookman duly noted that David did not defeat Goliath on his own. Rather, he defeated Goliath directly after receiving the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Just like the Spirit had come on Samson, that pot-bellied skinny guy, right? <laughs> you guys weren't listening very well, or you were trying to keep up with all the gear shifting that goes on in Dr. Bookman's preaching or teaching, or whatever you want to try and call it. He's not here this morning. He might listen to this, so I'll, I'll ask you to forgive me, Dr. Bookman, but one of my friends dutifully 
described Dr. Bookman as a thousand monkeys running for the microphone all at the same time. And you're not quite sure which one's going to get it. <laughs> but I love what Dr. Bookman's point here was, was that we tend to think of Samson as this big, buff, strong guy, and that's not the point. The point is the Spirit of God is coming upon Samson, and it's likely he's some small, scrawny, little, skinny, pot-bellied guy, right, that needs the Spirit of God to operate and do what God has called him to. So just like the Spirit had come upon Samson to tear the lion and defeat the Philistines, the Spirit had come upon David to beat Goliath and defeat the Philistines. In spite of the Holy Spirit's anointing on Saul and David, just like Gideon and Samson, those two kings were in fact still sinners and unable to rule with pure righteousness and pure Justice, giving us this hint, right, that there must be a different king. We must be looking for someone else. Saul would disobey the word of the Lord through Samuel and disqualify himself from being this king who rules in righteousness and justice. And David would violate the word of the Lord through Moses when he commits adultery and murder. All this leaves us to wonder, where is the king? Where is this one? That is our series. Beloved, today we'll see that although God in his sovereignty knew of David's future sin, Yahweh God makes a covenant with David that will last forever and ever. Amen? Forever and ever. Warren Wiersbe has been a blessing to me in this series as he, uh, the way he writes is pulls a lot of big things together in a very concise way and when your time is limited, as mine often is, it's nice to read those who uh, have spent a large amount of time doing that. Wearsby, as usual, did a wonderful job of breaking down 2 Samuel 7, which is where we're going to be today. If you're in your Bibles or have them with you, you can turn there. 2 Samuel 7 will go over most of everything in that chapter. But uh, Dr. Wearsby broke it down into three Ps. He's so good for this. The first is found in verses 1 through 7. He titled it, A Noble Purpose. That's the first P. The second is found in verses 18 through 17. It is titled, A Wonderful Promise. And the third is found in verses 18 through 29. It is titled, A Humble Prayer. Purpose, promise, and prayer. That is how we are going to approach this text today. Before we get to that noble purpose, though, in verses 2 and 3, notice in verse 1 in 2 Samuel 7. It says this, Now it came about, it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. Beloved, I want to say this, that, that David is now living in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies. We were living at the time of these events and were experiencing all that was going on. We would likely believe that David was the promised God-anointed king coming from the line of David. One of the things that Dr. Bookman said, and I've often said this about trying to learn from him, and as I've learned from him over the years, is you just kind of have to grab your wheelbarrow and follow along, and everything that he drops out there that you can hold on to, you just pick it up and try and stick it in your wheelbarrow and keep on trucking, right? Um, but one of the things that was so instructive that he said that is so instructive for you, and I pray that if I don't get another thing across to you this morning, that you would get this. When we read our text, when we go to the Old Testament, when we go to the New Testament, we must do everything we can when we're thinking about what does this text mean to drop everything we know that is coming after it and ask yourself, what is the author's intent at that moment in that second for those people who are reading that text? And when you find the author's intent, you will have found what it means. Never ask the question, what does it mean for me? Ask the question, how is this significant to me? But never, never, what does it mean to me? It doesn't matter what it means to you. 
What matters is what did God mean it for the ears of David and for the ears of Nathan? What did he mean it to mean? And we must stay there and we must work for it. We cannot allow further revelation that is happening in the New Testament to inform what is being said. The meaning is there in the text that further revelation in the New Testament and in other books, praise the Lord, they bring color to the current meaning. They do not erase the current meaning and replace the current meaning. Does that make sense? Or the old meaning. So important that we get that. He blew on by it. I picked it up and remembered as I was studying the importance of those things. Put yourself in their shoes. David has been nothing but anointed. He has delivered the nation from Goliath and the Philistines who are advancing, trying to take the country. He is right? He has beat bears and lions and all this to point to the fact that the Spirit of God is upon him, enabling him, inspiring him to do that which he is doing. We would have believed that David was likely that promised God-anointed king coming from the line of Judah. We would know that there was an unconditional three-part covenant, would we not, to Abraham that promised that his seed would be like the sand of the sea. We would be inhabiting, at this point in time, geographic Israel. We will be in the promised land that had been promised to Abraham 400 years earlier, and we would have the blessing of rest from our enemies. It would seem like this is it. God's promises, it's come true. David is ruling and reigning in righteousness. There's no known sin in his life. We would believe and put together that the promised king is here. Add to David's Holy Spirit anointed abilities. Verse 1 says that David had a house, a place to live, implying at least for the moment the nation was safe and protected from its enemies. You don't have to read too much further into 2 Samuel, and you'll know that that peace does not last long. But at this moment, there was peace in the land. And it was at that time, verse 2, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. So, beloved, here is the first P. It is a noble purpose that David and Nathan seek. David, the king, is living a, in a beautiful home, and Yahweh, the king of the universe, is hanging out in a tent, and not a new one, I might add. It's a noble purpose. They're hanging out. I kind of see him. I don't know how this works, but I kind of see him just as friends. Nathan the prophet's first time he shows up in the text, he's going to show up two other times for very different reasons, but it seems as if they're having a conversation, and David's like, man, look at this beautiful house God has given you. If you ever get the chance to go to Israel, you'll go to the city of David. Likely it sits on the south, kind of southeast part of where the Temple Mount is at. And it's on this little finger, this geographic finger. It's not very big. It's about 60, 70 yards wide, maybe 100, 150 yards long. But right at the top where the city gate would have been is where they have found and excavated David's house. He's living in this beautiful house, and they've uncovered now foundation stones that give us some kind of clue of how huge this thing was. And David is sitting in his house, and Nathan the prophet is there, and David is thinking, why in the world am I in this beautiful house, and God is sitting in a ragged 400-year-old tent? Let's fix this. It seems noble. Does it not? Nathan said to the king, verse 3, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Beloved, we see here that Nathan, who shows up here for the first time, is a prophet, one who, when he hears the words of the Lord, he speaks it to the king. David and no other earthly king following him would be like Moses at all, who had spoken with Yahweh as face to face. David and the kings following him would have a court prophet, whom Yahweh would put his words in their mouth. And if you're familiar with Kings and Chronicles, these prophets show up all the way through, do they not? Isaiah and 
Jeremiah and Daniel and Hosea, right? All of them. They show up through this text. And what are these men doing? They're speaking to the king on behalf of Yahweh. It is not like Moses. There has never been another like Moses who would spend 80 days on the mountain learning as if face-to-face from God. God would use his prophet. He would put his words in his mouth, and that prophet would speak to the king. Let it not be too confusing and and maybe uplift you a little bit that when Jesus is being asked constantly throughout your New Testament, where does your authority come from? He's always responding with this. I say nothing except what the Father says. I do nothing except what the Father does. His authority is coming from God. His authority is coming from God. However, in verses 1 through 3, the two, that is Nathan and David, Nathan and David, I couldn't even try to do that again if I wanted, assume, nobly I might add, that they will take care of this seemingly unjust situation without seeking the Lord. Nathan is not speaking to King David in this setting, in these verses, saying, thus says the Lord, he is speaking to David as a friend, presuming that the Lord is on board. You like that rhyme? You didn't even get that it was a rhyme. The Lord is on board. Amen. They're assuming. How do we know that? We read in verses 4 through 7, but in the same night, the same night, now Nathan seems to have gone home. They are split up. It is in the night. The word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, verse 5, Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? We understand this to be a rhetorical question, right? To which we resoundingly understand it to mean, No, you are not the one who is to build me a house. Verse 6, for I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle. Verse 7, wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? What's the Lord saying? In a nice but rhetorical way? I can ask for a house if I want one. I didn't ask for one. I didn't instruct you to build me one. The one I do have, I have given very specific instructions for, and if I need a new one, I'll let you know. The Lord's content, amen? There is a principle we can learn from situations like these, is there not? We often have noble purposes or noble thoughts or noble plans. And like Nathan and David, rather than consult the Lord and those whom he has put into our lives for wisdom and leadership, we often go off and do what we see as right in our own eyes, even when it comes to ministry and life in the kingdom and life in the church. What seems like we need to have this program or that program? Did we pray? Did the Lord lead us there? Is it a need? We run off and we spend hours upon hours and sometimes dollars upon dollars doing things that maybe the Lord would not have us to do. So rather than consult Nathan and David, uh, they did not go to the Lord for wisdom. Beloved, before we do anything, We should consult the Lord. We have three ways in which we can do so. Maybe more, but I'm going to name three. We can go to the Lord in prayer. Hebrews 4, chapter chapter 4, verse 16 says this, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One of the beauties of the time, the dispensation, the church age, whatever you like to call it, is that Christ has fulfilled the law, he has paid the price, that the veil that separated God in the Holy of Holies from man and his priest has been torn. And the Bible, especially Hebrews, everywhere affirms that you and I, like sons of the king, can run into the throne room of grace 
and ask the Lord. We can ask the Lord. Now, I want to buffer that. I have been told all kinds of crazy things as a pastor. God told me to marry this person. God told me to divorce my wife. God's not going to tell you what his word does not affirm. He's not going to tell you what his word does not affirm. I think Henry Blackaby uh, said it, whether it was in his uh, Experiencing God or Spiritual Leadership book, he said it best that I reserve the right to judge your opinion about what God has said to you through the lens of Scripture. That's what we know God has said. So certainly we can go and we can ask for instruction, and we should, to receive grace in time of need. But second, we need to go to God's Word for wisdom and instruction in everything. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 is a proverb I often take people to in counseling. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. We could, this is Solomon writing this to his son. He clearly learned something from his father and maybe even this event. Solomon is saying, don't do what my dad and Nathan did and try to build a house for the Lord, right? Trust not in your own understanding and your own discernment and your desires, but lean on the Lord for everything. In all your ways, verse 6, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Do not do what is wise in your own eyes. That's the opposite of the message of Judges. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. Beloved culture is pressing into the church, it's pressing into uh, 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 Christianity in such a way that it is expecting that it's going to bow the knee to the gender debate and all these other things that are right uh, culturally. And the Lord, His Word is clear. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Do not lean on your own understanding. God has spoken what He means. Don't do it. and it will be healing to your body. We need to, secondly, turn to God's word for wisdom. We can go to those whom God has allowed. Number three, we can go to those whom God has allowed to be an authority over us. In David's day, that was the prophet Nathan. In the church age, these are our pastors, men who have dedicated their lives to knowing what God has said so that they, even though they are not getting direct revelation like Nathan is from the Lord, can look to God's word and confidently say to us, thus says the Lord. This is what God has to say about divorce and remarriage. This is what God has to say about gender. This is what God has to say about marriage. This is what God has to say about forgiving. This is what God has to say about not becoming unequally yoked. We turn to our pastors not to get their opinion, but to hear them and the wisdom that God has given them through studying the Scripture. Let me say, beloved, that this may be one of the most difficult things for people to do, especially people in America, to submit to finite men who are like David, able to fall into sin. It's one of the most difficult things. It's not much different than David. David is going to fall into sin we are called to submit. We are called to, to line up our lives with those men who have given us wisdom and to believe through the wisdom that they have received in the Word of God that they are doing their absolute best to give us the type of information we need to know to live and walk through difficult situations in life. But we don't like it. And we look around and we see uh, godly men Right, fall from the ministry, get in all kinds of sexual sin or problems, uh, steal money, they get disqualified for one reason or another. And so often, this is the wildest thing to me, so often they just leave that church and they go start up another church that fills up with a bunch more people. They're disqualified from the ministry. You're done. 
yet they'll just go and fill up another one. And we're surprised when it falls. So we look to those examples and we think, man, why would I want to follow somebody who can sin just like I can? Well, because God is going to call us to submit to those godly leaders. It's much like I tell people, it's much like a wife submitting to her husband. Not submitting to your husband because he's perfect. If that's the case, you're never going to get it done. The idea is that while you submit to your husband, while you fall into line with him, God will bless you. You will learn to grow and be patient with a man who likely does not deserve your respect, but you're commanded not too much later in Ephesians 5 to give him that respect. The idea is that we are turning to what God has said, and we are doing that, and we are not leaning on our own understanding. We are looking at what the Word of God says, and we are saying, ah, this is so difficult. This man that you've given me, Lord, he's a mess. Or the the man might be saying, this woman that you've given me, like Adam, she made me to sin. Will you, man, die to your will like Christ died for the church? And you, woman, submit to your husband as if he's the Lord. What? Why? Because it's worship unto the Lord. Worship. Hebrews 13, 7 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls that those who will give an account. I think this verse, as much as it makes me celebrate on one hand, yeah! On the other side, it says, oh, give an account. James 3 is going to tell us that those who teach us are judged more harshly. Here we understand that how we shepherd the flock is going to, we're going to have to give an account for that. He goes on to say, let them do this, that is your leaders, with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So it is, beloved, we can have noble purposes like David and Nathan did. But like them, we should never ever get away from that which God is speaking to us through his word. Amen? Let me encourage you that if you're pastors, I realize in a newer church like ours is that it's going to take time for me to become your pastor. I get that. It takes time to build relationships. Yet God will honor the submission. He will honor your willingness as you walk ahead. Many of you probably have a lot of church hurts and wounds and things, and you look up here and think, sure, the pastor's going to preach on submit to your leaders. <laughs> right? I get that it's going to take a little bit of time. But listen, God will honor it. If God, if God, through myself or our elders, has given you instruction and wisdom, and you're not doing what we have said, might reconsider what that looks like. Now, let's take a look at the second P. It's a wonderful promise found in verses 18 through 17. Yahweh, speaking directly to Nathan, says in verse 8, Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, this is David, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people. I have been with you wherever you have Gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Nathan is to speak the words of God to David, and in verse 8, in the first half of verse 9, Yahweh would remind David of, of Yahweh's abundant grace that he had chosen him. Being the youngest of his brothers, you'll remember that story that they all lined up, but he wasn't there, and, and the Spirit of God did not allow Samuel to anoint the new king, and he's asked to ask Eli, uh, do you have another kid? There's something wrong here. He doesn't know Eli. Say, well, yeah, he's out in the fields <laughs> shepherding the sheep. It's what is being said here, and David is being reminded that he had been chosen in the most unlikely of circumstances against uh, his brothers to be the next king of Israel. 
Oh, beloved, how often God chooses the foolish things of life to show us how powerful he is. David was a sinner like you and I, yet God chose David to accomplish his will and to glorify himself. He was a sinner. He was an unlikely kid, not even worthy of getting invited to the party, so to say. There's no way it could be him. David's life is a picture of the gospel, is it not? God's grace reaching out to the unlikely, those whom he sovereignly knows are sinners, and saying, come on in. You'll find forgiveness here. Repent and believe. In the second half of verse 9, there is a notable shift from the past tense of what God has done for David to the future tense of what God will do for David. Nathan is to deliver God's very word to David, saying, And I will make you, that's David, a great name, like the names of great men who are on the earth. If you were here last week, you heard Dr. Bookman in a hyperbolic way allude to the truth of verse 9 and the greatness of David's name. As we are asking the question, where is the king? And if we were living at this moment in history and we could implant ourselves there, we would certainly think that David was this anointed king promised in Genesis 49 and Numbers chapter 24. However, we know the rest of David's story, don't we? We know that his life ends much like the other judges in Israel's history with sin that led to personal tragedy. Remember the story of Samson. Remember, we, we often, sometimes, I don't know why, we speed up and forget what happens to Gideon in the end, whose 70 some sons die because of his disobedience. Unlike the judges, though, David becomes the gold standard in how to act when confronted with sin. He repents, he asks forgiveness, and he moves forward in his life to serve Yahweh. This is why God calls David a man after God's own heart. All of the Torah, Joshua, Judges, moves toward King David, and all the rest of the Old Testament will measure each one of the kings by the standard of King David. That is what Bookman was trying to show us last week in Chronicles and Kings. That he's saying, but this one was wicked. He did evil in the eyes of, of the Lord, and he did not live up to King David. Nevertheless, knowing of David's sin causes us, the reader, to ask, where is the king who will rule with righteousness and justice? And beloved, God has fulfilled his promise to David in verse 9, making his name great. Amen? He made his name great. Notice in verse 10, the Lord will say to David, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel. Beloved, May get your attention. The most significant truth about interpreting the Scripture can be shown right here. Remember what I told you earlier in the sermon, we have got to get in the shoes of the people who are hearing this, and we must understand what is being said to them, even though sometimes it is a little difficult. We have a lot of years between us and them, but we have to do our work, and we have to get there, and we have to say whatever this promise meant to David and Nathan is what God means. Not some system of theology that came out of the Reformation, which often happens. Not some system of New Testament theology that somehow uh, erases what God has said here in the text. We must get to what the hearer heard and say, that's what God means. That's what he means. Lest God be a liar. Lest God be a liar. We must remember that when we study the Scripture, we are obligated to ask the question, what did the author intend the listener to understand? We don't over-spiritualize it. We don't lay over theology on it. We don't erase it. Lest we be guilty of Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus himself says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Not one jot, not the smallest stroke of the pen, not the dot of an eye will go away from the law until all is fulfilled. Let's not be guilty of that, amen? 
There's no clearer way for God to tell David and us, the Gentiles, the national and ethnic Israel will inhabit a place and enjoy rest that he had promised Abraham right here in verses 10 through 11. Pay attention. I will, this is the Lord speaking, also appoint a place for my people Israel. And I, you could put in there, I will plant them that they may live in their own place and, listen here, not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded the judges to be over my, over my people Israel, and I will give you rest, that's David, from all your enemies. The Abrahamic covenant. You're going to have a plan. You're going to have a place, a land. You're going to have an eternal seed. And you are going to have rest. Now, beloved, the last time I checked, this has not happened. David has rest for a period of time and then right back into war. He loses four of his sons to to internal battles and because of his sin with Bathsheba, the nations press in. Assyria uh, comes in, right? Uh, Has already come in and taken the the north. Babylon will come in in 586 BC and they will take the south. That's not rest from my enemies. Rome shows up in the New Testament. What are they? They're ruling over the land. Is there a king in the land? There's no king in the land. This is future tense. Now let me ask you, if you've put yourself in David's shoes and Nathan's shoes and you walk away from this statement somehow thinking this, now pick up with me. I'm not believing this. I'm just saying if somehow you have walked away from, I will appoint a place for my people is, I will plant them. Uh, they will never be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Do, do we understand that? This is the promise of God. This is what he has said to David. Now ask yourself, if we walk away somehow saying, God must be kidding with us. Really? There is no ethnic and national Israel that will receive a land, a king, and rest from their enemies. Every person, no matter their ethnicity or geographic location, whoever believes in Yahweh will receive this specific promise. That's ridiculous. It's the opposite of what God has just told David. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a king, and I'm going to bless you with rest forever. Not happened. We look for it to happen. No way. God meant what he said. He says what he means. This promise is for ethnic and national geographical Israel. And spoiler alert, as as, uh, Troy likes to say, this has not happened yet, right? Hence the book of Revelation, where God causes all Israel to be saved and delivers them through the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In chapter 19 and 20 and 21. Right there for you to read. Now, get off that soapbox. Another half hour or so. I didn't hear any groans. (laughs) Amen. That encourages me. (laughs) Uh, More for this wonderful promise. This time directly aimed at David. This time, the promise is directly aimed at David and his offering. It is good to note that God makes this promise to David, knowing full well that David will, in the future, commit adultery and murder. Beloved, I often counsel people who have been deceived into sin and they're feeling the consequences of that sin, thinking that God will not keep his promise or that they have somehow lost their salvation uh, because of their sin. I want for just a second that let David's life speak to you in this regard. And remember that 1 John 1.9 tells every Christian that if and when you fall into sin, uh, John includes himself in this text, right? We, when we sin, if I confess my sin, that God himself in Christ Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us. Let David, if you are struggling in sin and you just can't find a way out and you are down and out and you can't and you think man I have lost my salvation you can't lose it you maybe have never had it but you can't lose it 
Think of David. Think of this story. Think of this scenario. Think of the heinousness of the fact that David, while his, with, while his mighty men are out fighting an army, is beginning to look down off this high hill of his house at one of his mighty men's wives. And he lusts for her, and he takes her, and she is, uh, gets pregnant. And then, and then David, in fear, right, covers up the sin, and then sends one of his mighty men, the men who came alongside him at his lowest moment, out there in the wilderness in a cave, acting crazy. He sends that man to the front lines to have him murdered, to cover up his sin with his wife. God knows all that. At this point in the text, if you're reading carefully, David is receiving a promise from God that is forever, knowing he will commit this heinous sin. Oh, the grace of God. Amen? That's you this morning. You're struggling. You've fallen. You don't know where you're going. At one point in time in your life, you have you, you have given your life to Christ, but now you just don't even know where you're at? That's your sin to the Lord. It's what David did when Nathan approached him about it. Woe is me. And we have Psalm 51. Repent and believe. Amen? Second half of verse 11, I need to speed up here. Forgive me, the Lord also declares to you, that the Lord will make a house for you. Notice the wordplay Yahweh performs, on, performs here on David in verse 1. In verse 1, David says, I will build a house for the Lord. That's a physical location. The Lord says, I will build a house for you, a dynasty that will last forever and ever. Amen? Verse 12, when your days are complete, this is David, when your days, the Lord is saying to him, are complete and you lie down with your fathers. In other words, you are not that eternal king, even though the sin has not happened. I will raise up your descendant after you. We know this is Solomon, who will come forth from you. And I will. You know what? Take a moment as you're reading along with me. And highlight or underline or circle every time the Lord says with certainty he will. I will raise up your Children, I will make a house for you who will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Verse 13, at the end, forever. I will be a father to him, this is Solomon, and, and others, and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, what does that mean? Just like God had, had judged the Canaanite nations with Israel by bringing them in and wiping them out, God is saying, I am, I am no respecter of persons. If Israel gets into sin, I am going to judge them, and I am with the rod of men. I'm going to get rid of them. And he does it, doesn't he? He will. I will correct him with the rod of man and the strokes of men, verse 14, verse 15. But my loving kindness, listen, this, this is, this is uh, in the Hebrew, is this chesed, love. It is similar to what we might think of, uh, of agape in the sense that this is God's committed love. My committed loving kindness shall not, underline that one too, depart from him as I took it away from Saul. You'll remember that moment when I removed you, or Remove from you him from among you. Your house and your kingdom, listen here, shall, underline it, circle it, endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. The second time God in the scriptures is making this unconditional covenant. He's going to sin. You're going to sin. But you, David... You were the one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold that throne and up here at this high place. And yes, your sons are going to violate it. And I'm going, to, I'm going to discipline them with the rod of men. But one day, one from you, David, will be the one who holds the throne. That is the authority forever. 
Beloved, last week, Dr. Bookman pointed out the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ and how Israel shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Hosanna to the Son of David! Many of them recognized Jesus as the king who would bring these promises of national and ethnic peace to the people and the nations. However, they had missed a detail in the promise to Abraham, a promise to graft in the Gentiles as his people. The Apostle Paul picks up on this truth in Galatians 3, verses 8 and 9, saying this, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Verse 9, don't leave it out. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Sometimes a church that is like ours that and subscribes to um, a theology that there's a promise for a national and ethnic Israel will get accused of saying, uh, of, of saying or teaching that we teach two different ways of salvation. I don't know how that even comes about. It's a straw man argument. And maybe I don't hope I'm not talking completely over your heads here, but here's the proof. We just believe what the Bible says. Abraham did not earn his salvation. He believed God. And his righteousness was given to him. His justification, his salvation. We, in this dispensation, in this time, we believe God in our righteousness. <laughs> is given to us by grace, through faith. That's the only way. It's the only way it has ever been. Friends, Jesus, the son of David, who will come and fulfill the forever promises of God to Israel, also at his first coming, became the way for all people, Jews and Gentiles, to be restored to God. Not only is he the soon coming Davidic king that we expect to come, but he fulfilled the promise to Adam and Eve as the child who would fix the curse of sin passed to all mankind through Adam. We get all these prophecies about a king that's coming, right? And we tend to maybe even separate or forget that, whoa, wait, back in Genesis 3.15, God said he was going to crush or bruise the head of Satan. He's going to fix this curse of sin. Yes, this sin fixer and this king are one person. Amen? Thanks for bearing with me. I've got just a few more minutes. We'll be done. Friends, Jesus came the first time to become sin on your behalf, to reconcile humanity to God. But as a second coming, he will establish a forever Davidic kingdom, fulfilling Yahweh's promises to ethnic and national Israel for a thousand years and then usher in an eternal state. Let me ask you this. Maybe a lot of this is over your head or under it or whatever. I have no idea. But what I do know is that the God in the person of Jesus Christ came and he took the punishment of your sin, your personal sin, in a way that you could not do. And he took it to the cross. And in John, third chapter, Verse 16, we're so familiar with the verse, right? That whoever, whosoever would believe that Jesus took your punishment to the cross would not perish in hell, but have eternal life. Jesus did what David couldn't do. Jesus, Jesus did what Saul couldn't do. Jesus did what, uh, what Samson and Gideon and the judges who were all guilty of sin couldn't do. He lived a life that is sinless. And he chose to take your punishment. And he took your place on the cross. And the Bible says in the majestic way, you don't have to be the oldest person in here this morning, that if you put your faith in that work, you will be saved. Not because of your sin or the sin that you fell back into, right? Nothing is going to, to pull you out of the hands of God. David didn't deserve his salvation. You don't deserve your salvation. Grace. It's grace. Amen. Time has escaped us to dig deeply into the third P, David's humble prayer, but suffice it to say, as I finish up here, verse 24 reveals that David understood the ethnic and national promise to Israel when he prayed. 
we can look at his pray, prayer starting there um, in uh, verse 18. And it's really worthy, beloved, of, of going through it and just, it's so humble. Verse 24 says this, though, for you, speaking to the Lord, have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever. David's not thinking the Gentiles are coming in. He's not thinking that there's no such thing as a kingdom. He's not thinking that the kingdom is now. He's thinking there's a kingdom coming. And if that's what David is understanding, the word of the Lord to mean, that's likely probably what we ought to understand the word of the Lord to mean. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Beloved, I cannot warn you enough. Do not buy into the idea that the church has somehow replaced or become Israel, lest you make God a liar to David. David clearly understood what the Lord's promise was. He, we should not let systems of theology undo what God has clearly stated. When Peter is allowed by the Lord to answer the question, who do people say that I am? Jesus is speaking to Peter, James, and John there in the, in the, in the twelve. <laughs> And Peter speaks up, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds to him and he says, Peter, Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, you got it. Blessed be you, because not because of your own self, but what God has revealed to you. And it is upon this rock, this statement of faith, listen here, pay attention to the tense. It matters in the Greek, it matters in the Hebrew. I will what does will mean? It's future. I will do what? Build my answer. Church. I will build it in the future. When the Spirit of God comes at Pentecost, I am going to build my church when I pour out my Spirit on individuals who repent and believe. Church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. God has made promises to David. We can see it. Just leave it alone. David ends his prayer, beloved, as I am going to end also. I promise. I keep promising that, but I am on my last page. David ends his prayer in acknowledgement that he is not the eternal king, saying this, Now therefore... Saying this to the Lord, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. What a humble prayer. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. You said it. And with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. Friends, when my boys were a little younger, they would get themselves into trouble, as boys do. And Valerie and I would have to discipline them as you should do. My boys, if you'd like. I have lost you. We would often do that by grounding them, discipline them by grounding them from the things that they love to show them that there was consequences for their actions. There were consequences for their actions. Sometimes, believe it or not, depending on the circumstances, I would lose my temper. Can you believe that? I think I was 24 when we had Tristan. He had a few years of grace there, and then sometimes I lost my temper. Not often, though, right, Tristan? He's not saying a word. <laughs> His lips are sealed forever and ever, amen? Now, when they would ask how long they were grounded for, I would uh, respond in anger, angry, forever. You're grounded forever and ever, Amen. You're never going to leave your room again. Leave the bread outside your door. Well, my boys are thankful that their father is not God, and in fact, so am I. Where I was angry and promised forever punishment. God, with you, I, and David, sees our shortcomings and our sin, yet he keeps his promise to us forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, today we've seen that God 
in his sovereignty, knew of David's future sin. He made a covenant with David that will last forever and ever. All God's people said. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to preach this message and for these folks who have diligently listened to certainly a longer message. But God, uh, we are encouraged by this monumental text in the Scripture that not only is it this promise to David that he would receive in his own life, but it is such a picture of your grace, your concern, and your character to follow that who whom you are, Lord, that you can't sin, you can't lie to people, Lord, because you are holy and good. Lord, we are grateful as we peer into it that we see your grace, we see your forgiveness. We can identify with David. We can identify with David and Nathan who get off track, Lord, I pray that if we have been doing that and not seeking your, your direction in life, God, grant us repentance that at the end of life we can look somebody as we, in the eye as we take our last breath and we can say that we did what the Lord wanted us to do. And Lord, that the very next thing we would experience is you saying, well done, good, faithful servant. Lord, help us in these things. We know we cannot do them outside of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.